Hey, welcome everybody. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here at River City. Good to be with you guys. Kind of doing multiple duty this week, but that's fun, right? Um, we are uh, studying uh, the, the series that we're in this summer. It's called Jesus on Every Page, the Gospel in the Old Testament. And um, what we're doing this summer is taking a look at a bunch of Old Testament stories. Um, and my heart in us doing that is that as we study the Old Testament, as we um, take a look at some of those stories that maybe we're familiar with, maybe you grew up hearing, or maybe you just have never heard at all before, um, it's, easy to, it's easy to miss the intended purpose and point of all those things. And I think what ends up happening a lot of times is that we just kind of see the Old Testament as like kind of Christian fables, right? That it's just something that teaches us a lesson or a moral that we need to live by. And uh, if, if we read the Old Testament and, and study and see it like that, we will miss the entire point. And so our study this summer, Jesus on every page, the gospel in the Old Testament, my heart, my intention as we study is that we would see that the point of the Old Testament, the whole point of it, every page of it, it's to proclaim Jesus, it's to foreshadow him, it's to get us ready and to get us anticipating and waiting for the good news about the gospel. Dan, it's so good. I hope you guys have really enjoyed our, uh, our study so far. We've looked at lots of different characters, all the way from Genesis. Uh, we studied uh, the story of Joseph. Uh, last week, we talked about uh, the Israelites in the Red Sea crossing. And man, I hope you thought that was good. I thought it was good. I know I went like real long. Apologize about that. But anyways, this morning, we're in chapter two of uh, the book of Joshua. And so our passage picks up about 40 years after that Red Sea crossing. And so God uh, miraculously delivers his people finally out of, uh, out of Egypt, ultimately through that, uh, the, the crossing of the Red Sea. And he brings them into this, uh, the land of Canaan. And the land of Canaan is the promised land. It's this land that God has set aside for his people and his purposes. And, and it's a land that he's promised to them that he will give them. And what happens is he, they kind of uh, head that direction and they get to the edge of the land and they send, uh, Moses sends in 12 spies out into the land. And they go around searching and they see uh, a warrior people that already occupies the land. And so they all come back and 10 of the, po- 10 of the spies come back and they say, we saw, we went, we saw, we cannot. It is not going to work. It is not going to happen. But there's two spies who say, the land is incredible. It's flowing with everything that's good. Let's trust the Lord and go with him. Unfortunately, uh, God's people, uh, if you had to guess, uh, they chose not to trust God. They chose not to listen to the, the two spies. And uh, they chose to reject that. And instead, God caused them to wander around in the desert for 40 years until everybody from that faithless generation had died. And so our passage picks up again, and God's people are again on the edge of the promised land. And the, that this generation, which chose to just reject God, which chose, to, which chose not to trust him, which chose not to hope in him, despite all of the stuff that he had done for them, they're gone, and Joshua is leading God's people, and they're at the edge of the promised land, and he sends in two spies. Not 12, just two this time, right? And what we'll see this morning is that the report that they bring back is altogether different than what happened 40 years ago. And it's different because of... Uh, it's different because of God, but it's different because God in their travels caused them to meet a lady, a woman named Rahab. Rahab becomes the main focus of the story of Joshua chapter 2, and 
Rahab is a woman who God powerfully and graciously saves and uses as an example to his people of what true faith really looks like. And this morning, what we're going to see, man, it's really good news, you guys. What we're going to see this morning is that it's faith that turns foreigners into family. It's faith that turns foreigners into family. So let's read our passage and then pray and asking that God would just help us to see Jesus on every page, all right? Joshua chapter 2. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly went to two, uh, sent two spies to Shittim, going, uh, look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. And so they went and they entered the house of a prostitute and named Rahab stayed there. And the king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. And so the king of Jericho sent his message to Rahab, bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, yes, the men came here, but I didn't know where they had come from. And at dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. And I don't know which way they went. So go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had taken them up on the roof and had hidden them under the stalks of flax, and she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that led to the the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. And we have heard how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites, east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. And when we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven and above and on the earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will give uh, that you will show kindness to my family because I've shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who would belong to them, and that you'll save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you, if you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So she let them down by a rope through the window, for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. And she said to them, go to the hills, and the, uh, also the pursuers will not find you. And hide yourselves there for three days until they return, and then go on your way. Now the men had said to her, this oath you made us swear will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land you have tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you, will, uh, you let us down. And unless you have brought your father and mother, your brother and all your family into the house, if any of them go outside your house into the street, their blood will be on their own heads and we will not be responsible. And as for those who are in the house with you, their blood will be on our head and our hand is laid on them. But if you tell what we are doing, we will be released from the oath that, we made, that you made us swear. Agreed, she replied. Let it be as you say. And so she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. And when they left, they went into the hills and stayed there three days until the pursuers had searched all along the road and returned without finding them. Then the two men started back and they went down out of the hills, forded the river and came to Joshua, son of Nun, and told him everything that had happened. And they said to Joshua, the Lord has surely given us the whole land into our hands. All of the people are melting in fear because of us. Let's pray. God, we're so thankful for your word. Thanks that you would record it and save it so we might study it and in doing so we might see and know you. God, we just um, 
God, my heart for our time together is that we'd see Jesus. God, that we'd see the good news of the gospel in the Old Testament. God, give us eyes by your spirit to be able to see it. God, fill me with your spirit so that I'd have anything I could offer us together as we study your word. Gosh, pray that you'd, God, that you'd just be good news, that the story of Rahab would be good news to us this morning. Pray these things in your good name. Amen. Amen. Well, sociological studies uh, have shown uh, over the years that less and less traditions get handed down from generation to generation. But overwhelmingly, the thing that does get handed down are uh, kind of, um, I don't know, I call, I guess, common presuppositions, right? There's kind of beliefs that are handed down rather than traditions. One of the most common presuppositions that is, uh, that's handed down these days is, is the perceived dichotomy between faith and science. The thinking is usually that science deals with facts and faith deals with opinions, uh, usually baseless, superstitious opinions, right? And increasingly, the idea is that um, faith is seen as uh, weakness, it's seen as a crutch, it's seen as uh, kind of this, this limping thing for sup- the superstitious and the weak-minded, while truth, true strength is found in, in the foundation of facts. Uh, but that's just... I'll just be honest, that's a false dichotomy. There's not really, there's not really a separation between science and faith in, in many ways. Faith simply means to trust or rely on something. We all exercise faith. The most devout monk to the most detailed scientist, everyone, artic- everyone exercises faith. You exercise faith as soon as you trust or rely on something. We exercise faith in things all the time. You are exercising faith that your chair is not going to collapse under you, right? You sat down in it thinking it would hold you. We exercise faith in systems, um, although it seems kind of crazy, right? You believe that when you swipe that plastic card, that money gets transferred. You're exercising faith in a system, right? That when you swipe that, your money, which is magically stored in some bank somewhere as a bunch of ones and zeros, gets transferred somewhere. You are exercising faith in a system. And we exercise faith in people all the time, right? You exercise faith that your boss will pay you at the end of the month for the work that you did. And you work as though under the assumption that he will pay you. The question is not, should we have faith? The question is not, is there a difference between faith and fact? The question is, who do we have faith in? Who or what do we put our faith in? Who or what do we rely on? Who or what do we trust in? Every human in existence exercises faith. What we put our faith in matters. It really changes our lives. And it's, in fact, what we're going to see this morning is that it's faith that radically changes the outcome of everyone and everything in the story. Most notably, it's faith that turns Rahab, a foreigner, into a part of God's family. It's faith that turns Rahab, a Canaanite prostitute, the most unlikely of converts, into family, into a beloved daughter of God and even a member of his people. And her faith is the focus of the whole story. And one of the things that the commentaries really point out is that there's a lot of questions um, that the author of the story just leaves totally out, right? Like, how did she meet them? And how did they actually get to her place? And what's going on with all of these weird things? And they actually, like the roof and letting people, like what's going on with all this stuff? The author doesn't answer any of those questions because he is not concerned with that at all. The point of the story, the way that it's written is the focus of it is about this woman Rahab and it's about her faith. 
This morning as we study, I want to show us five things about Rahab's faith. It's really, it's incredible. It's actually uh, remarkable, especially when you contrast this remarkable faith of this woman with a faithless generation of people who saw God like literally part an ocean and still chose not to trust him. The faith of this woman is incredible, especially as God's people are invited to trust him as they enter a land. So five things. I want us to see the object of her faith. I want us to see the source of her faith. I want to show you the basis of her faith. And all those things point us to the evidence of her faith and lead to the results of her faith. Let's dive in together. Verses 8 through 13, they record for us Rahab's profession of faith. And there's so much here, but verse 11 uh, shows us the most important thing about her whole profession of faith. In verse 11, we see the object of Rahab's faith. Verse 11 reads this way. The Lord your God is God in heaven and above and on the earth below. That might not seem like the most profound thing of all, but let me put that in context. Here is a Canaanite prostitute who would have been deeply aware of the religious beliefs of her culture, who as a prostitute probably played a role in the worship of other gods as a part of that culture. And what she's saying is not lost on these spies. She's not not just saying, oh, there's a God, he's powerful. No, he's saying, she's not saying a God. She's saying the God. Your God, she uses the name the Lord, which is translated in Hebrew, Yahweh. That's God's personal name. And so what she is saying is she's saying, the Lord, Yahweh, your God, he is the only God, and he's God everywhere. She uses God's personal name, and in doing so, she says two things. One, she's saying, it's Yahweh that's God. It's not Baal, it's not Asherah, it's not any of the other names of any of the other Canaanite gods. She says, Yahweh, the Lord, just him. He's the only God. And secondly, she says, and he's my God as well, because she's using the personal name of God, because he's personal to her. She does not mince her words. There is no uncertainty in her profession. She has heard what God did at the Red Sea 40 years ago. The stories of that have spread throughout the land. She has also heard how God delivered into the Israelites' hand these two great kings of the Ammonites, Sihon and Og, how they just absolutely destroyed them in very unexpected ways. And the one conclusion that Rahab has reached is that it's this God that is the only God. He is the one and true and only God. It's Yahweh the Lord. Some will say that, oh, it's not really a true profession of faith. She's just afraid. She's just afraid, right? Well, one commentator just helpfully notes, uh, yeah, she may have been afraid, as were all of the other Canaanites, but it was only her who put her faith in the Lord. Her profession of faith in the Lord The God of the Israelites was not just an acknowledgement of her faith in him. It was as well a rejection of all of the other gods of her culture. Rahab didn't have all of the answers, but she had the one answer that mattered the most. It was only this God that could save her. It was only this God that was worthy of her allegiance. And her words to the spies reveal that she has put her trust in him. You see, the object of Rahab's faith is God, and it's him alone. 
Man, how, how incredible is that? How unlikely, how unbelievable is that? A pagan harlot who is boldly professing what the Israelites had faith, had trouble believing themselves. What we're meant to see is that there's only one way that could have happened. That God did it. You see, God is the object of her faith, but he is also the source of her faith. Deuteronomy chapter 4, God tells his people, acknowledge and take heart to this day that the Lord is God in heaven and above and on the earth below. There is no other. Those words might sound familiar to you. Those are the words Rahab just uttered. That's, That's the words she used as she proclaimed her faith in the Lord. I can guarantee you she did not read that somewhere. I can guarantee you she did not have like an Israelite buddy who was like reading uh, Old Testament scriptures to her. I can guarantee you she didn't just like uh, come to that conclusion. No, only God could have enabled that kind of a response. God was drawing Rahab to himself, just as he had with Abraham in the very beginning. He was revealing himself to her long before anyone came and told her about God. I read this passage and just made me think of uh, a really a friend of mine in college. My friend uh, was just, an, just the staunchest of atheists. He thought anything that had to do with faith was just dumb. It was just, it was just pointless and dumb. I remember uh, one evening playing video games with him. Out of the blue, he tells me, you know, I was walking back from class today, and I realized that there, there de- there's got to be a God, and I wish someone would just help me figure out who he is. That doesn't happen unless the Lord is drawing people to himself. Maybe you've had experiences like that. Where God has just put a longing for him in your heart that wasn't there before. That's him doing it. Long before I got a chance to study God's word with my friend, to see him profess faith in Christ one day, God was pursuing him. God was drawing him. God was revealing himself to him. And long before someone explained to Rahab who Yahweh was, long before someone read to her the word of God, God was writing his words on her heart. In John chapter 655, Jesus himself tells us, no one comes unless the Father himself draws them. See, God is not just the object of Rahab's faith. He is the one who has enabled her faith in the first place. He's given it to her. The rest of the Canaanites have heard all the same stories. It just turned into fear. But God God turned Rahab's fear into great faith. One commentator, this is so helpful, he wrote this. He said, the word about God, the uniqueness of his sovereign authority, the power over all of creation is displayed in what he's done for his people. It has penetrated Jericho. And when the word of God gets into enemy territory, there are only two reactions that are possible. Either there is faith in the greatness of the Lord and a casting oneself at his mercy as Rahab does. Or there is great fear, which determines to resist God's supremacy, to challenge his will, and to continue to fight against his purposes. Neutrality in the face of God's sovereignty is impossible. And God is the one who has enabled Rahab's faith. He's turned her fear into true and abiding faith. 
You see, God is the object of her faith. He is the one who she has put her complete trust in, but he is also the one who has enabled her to respond to seeing his works with faith. And what we're meant to see from those two remarkable things is that the basis of her faith can be nothing other than the beautiful grace of God. See, Rahab is a pagan prostitute. There is nothing about her life that we are meant to look at and think, oh yeah, she definitely deserved saving. She deserved for God to be gracious to her. That's the point. That's the whole point, you guys. God is the one who does the saving. And he does it, he rescues her, and he saves her, and he redeems her, not on the basis of who she is. He does it on the basis of who he is. The sovereign and gracious Savior who would save all who would call on his name. That's the good news of the grace of God. And so Rahab, a foreigner, a prostitute, who was the epitome of someone who did not earn or deserve or merits God's mercy, is the one who receives it. See, Rahab's profession of faith It's the result of God's gracious revelation of himself to her. God's the one who's revealing himself to Rahab. But the passage doesn't just stop with her profession of faith, although that is crucial. The passage makes it clear that her profession of faith was only part of her story of faith. It was only part of the evidence of her faith. See, the New Testament affirms this. We see in James chapter 2, James writes about Rahab, he's saying, so a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith which is alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. True faith. Saving faith is described throughout the Bible not as something which is just an internal thinking or a belief. It is something that is always, always evidenced by external actions. Why? Because what you do reveals what you actually believe. What you do, the way you live, it reveals what you actually believe to be true. I stole this image from Aaron. He always uses this all the time. But if, if I had a rock in my hand, if you believed I was about to chuck it at your head, what would you do? You would duck because you don't want to get a rock to the head, right? But if you don't actually believe I will throw it at you, you won't move. You see, what you believe changes what you do. And so the passage points out that her profession of faith is intrinsically intertwined with her actions. She hides the spies. She lies about them to the king. She sends them off with bad advice. Why? Hebrews 11 says it this way. It was by faith, prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who are disobedient. It was her faith that caused her actions. The spies' interaction with her is probably the most telling of all, and as we look at the evidence of her faith, Places like Deuteronomy 7 and Deuteronomy 20, God is abundantly, overtly, in no uncertain terms clear that God's people are to enter no oaths, no covenants, no agreements in any way with Canaanites. 
Just a few chapters later in Joshua 9, we see the consequences that come when the Israelites do that, when they make a treaty with someone, with a Canaanite group. And the book of Judges is full of all of the disastrous consequences for the Israelites failing to obey that command of God. So, so why in Joshua 2 do we see these spies making a covenant with Rahab, a Canaanite woman? And the better question, why is it seen as a positive thing? There's no negative tone to what's going on here. There's no like sketchiness that's in view. It's, it's entirely seen as something good. Why? That makes no sense. One commentator just helpfully points out, he says, the crucial difference is that Rahab's confession of faith in Israel's God by this she has made herself an Israelite, so to speak. She has chose to cast her lot in with Israel's God, not the Canaanites' gods. And prior to this confession of faith, the spies showed no intention of entering into any treaties or agreements with her or with any other Canaanite. However, her confession of faith made all the difference. You see, prior to this confession of faith, the spies showed no intentions of making a treaty with her. But they've seen her actions... She's hidden them. She's safeguarded them. Why? They see the reason in her profession. And they put those two things together. And it's her actions plus her profession of faith, which is the evidence of her faith to these two spies. They see her as an Israelite sister, not as a pagan harlot. In their eyes, she's gone from foreigner to family. How? How? faith. And the results of her faith are just as amazing as the existence of her faith in the first place. Her faith is in the one true God revealed by her actions and her profession led her to ask the spies for help. Verse 12, she says, now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you'll show kindness to my family when the Lord gives you the land. Her faith in God is leading her to run to him and his people for mercy and for rescue. One commentator writes this. I just thought this was so helpful. Genuine faith never rests content with being convinced of the reality of God. Instead, it presses on to take refuge in him. It isn't just a matter of correct belief, but of desperate Rahab says, there's one God who can save. And you are his people, and I throw my lot in with you. She does that at great cost, because if those spies were caught, they would have surely have turned her in. If anything would have been found out, she would have certainly been killed. And so it's not just this lark of a hope. Rahab puts all of her hope in this promise she makes with God and God's people. And the, res- the spies respond to her this way. They say, our lives for yours. We'll do as you say. And they make a covenant with her that they'll save her when they conquer Jericho, something that by faith both they and Rahab know is imminent. So God meets Rahab in her need for him and in her plea for rescue, and God saves her. Why? Because by his grace, she had put her faith in him to save. Joshua 6 goes on to recount the Israelites conquering of Jericho, this great walled city. And in verse 25 we read, And Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her, because she had hid the men that Joshua had sent and despised as Jericho. And she lives among them to this day. 
God saved Rahab. He had turned a foreigner into his family. And in doing so, he shows the spies his power to go before them and to enable their faith to trust him as they walk into the land that he's promised. But it gets even better than that. Oh, it, gets, it gets even better. You see, the spies, they give Rahab a scarlet cord. They give her to hang out her window, and it was to be to them a sign, showing her faith in the covenant and the, and the promise that the spies had made with her. On the eve of the destruction of Jericho, that scarlet cord was hanging from her window. And as Rahab and her family are waiting this oncoming uh, battle, where they're waiting the Israelites to come, the Israelites are celebrating a night that happened 40 years ago, a night that God kept his covenant with them, a night where they painted the scarlet blood of animals on the posts of their doors in trust in faith that God would keep his covenant and pass over their homes. In faith, Rahab ties the scarlet cord to her window frame in faith in the promise that God would rescue her, that his people would keep their covenant with her. That night of the Passover, the night before a battle of Jericho, what were they both doing? They were claiming the covenant that was offered to them. Rahab and the Israelites, their actions, their, their claiming of the covenant that's offered to them. And so by faith, Rahab becomes a part of the story of God's redeeming work and saving his people. You see, God doesn't just save Rahab, though. He invites her into his story of redemption. And she's not just part of this story of the fall of the wall of Jericho or of the entrance of God's people into the promised land of Canaan. No, the results of her faith are far more incredible than that because God makes her a part of an even bigger story about the rescue of his people, a part of the story of the rescue of his people from the ultimate slave master of sin and Satan and death and a part of the ultimate story of entrance into the ultimate promised land of heaven. You see, Rahab would go on to have a son named Boaz. And Boaz comes up in the book of Ruth, where he redeems and marries a woman named Ruth who, like his own mother Rahab, was a foreigner who had put her faith in the one true God. And the book of Matthew opens with a genealogy. It's the genealogy of Jesus. You know whose, you know whose names are written in that line? It's Rahab and her daughter-in-law, Ruth. Their names are written in the genealogy of the one who would save the entire world. Do you see? It's Jesus. It's him on every page. It's the gospel in the Old Testament. You see, it's by faith that Rahab goes from being a foreigner to part of God's family, and it's by faith that we do the same. I know throughout our series, I've said, like, let's be careful not to tie ourselves with the wrong people in the story. Uh, don't do that. We're Rahab in this one. That, that's, that's not a mix-up. That's who we are. You and I are just like Rahab. I'll, I'll never forget, uh, with tears, one of my seminary professors, when talking about this story, he said this. Humanly speaking, Jesus came from a sordid bloodline. A harlot was his ancestor. But does that not underscore does that not underscore the very reason he came to save? We are like Rahab. We have prostituted ourselves to other gods and worshipped other idols. 
Yet God offers us salvation. And she put her feeble trust in the one true God. He became her savior. Because of that, God used her as an instrument to bring the Messiah into the world. Rahab was a foreigner who by faith God turned into family. And he does the same for us. The Apostle Paul, writing to the Ephesians in chapter 2, says this, Therefore, remember this. He says, therefore, remember, all of you who were Gentiles by birth, you were separate from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship in Israel. You were foreigners of the covenant of the promise. You were without hope. You were without God in the world. But now it's in Jesus. You who are far off. The language says, you have been brought near. That's the story of Rahab. Rahab, a foreigner who was far off, not by her own doing, not by her own merit, not by her own work. She was brought near by the grace of God. Paul goes on in that chapter to say, why? It's by grace you've been saved. It happens by faith so that you would never boast. You were dead and enslaved to your sin, just like Rahab was. But in Christ, God made you alive even when you were dead. Why? In order that in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. You see, the story of Rahab's salvation by faith is incredibly good news. It's good news for her. And it was good news for the spies who were rescued by one who God redeemed. And it's good news for us. Because Rahab's faith is a model for us of what true and saving faith is. See, the object of Rahab's saving faith was God. And in Hebrews 1, the Bible says that Jesus is the exact imprint of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is God. He is the object of our faith. And I just want to remind you of this. As I said last week... It is not the strength of your faith that saves you. It is the strength of your Savior that saves you. It is not how strongly you believe, how firm your faith is. It is, how, it is the object of your faith that saves you. Last week, the story of the Red Sea. The Israelites, I bet you, all of them got through. And I can guarantee you that some of them were running in joy and some of them were about to poop their pants. But they all got through because it wasn't, the, ob it wasn't the, the, the strength of their faith. It was the object of their faith that saved them. That is true for us. It is not the strength of your faith which saves you, but it's the object of our faith. It's Jesus that saves us. And the object of Rahab's faith wasn't just God. It was God alone. You see, and for us, the same. The gospel is not Jesus plus anything. It's not faith in him plus good works. It's not faith in him plus communion. It's not faith in him plus baptism or church attendance. It's just faith in him that saves. Likewise, the gospel is not Jesus or something else. Rahab's faith was in God alone. And in her statement, she is not just adding him to the list of, op of options. She is wiping the slate clean and writing him as the only way. There is no one else who could save Rahab. She put all her chips in on God. 
She rejected the ability of anyone or anything else to save her. See, the object of saving faith is Jesus. It's just him. It's always him. It's only him. And the good news is that he is the source of the faith that he requires. God is the one who enables Rahab faith. He's the one who has enabled yours. He's the one who wants to enable yours. And he does it on the basis of grace. I hope you see the magnitude of that. I hope you see like the weight of that truth. It was good news for Rahab because she did not need to be good enough because she never would be. And she did not need to clean her life up enough because it would never be possible. Rahab was a pagan prostitute in her place of business when God radically saved her. That's great. That's the grace of God. She She was not good enough. She did not clean herself up enough. She could never have done any of that. And that's the whole point because God wants all the credit for saving all of the people only his way by his grace so he would get all of the glory for doing it. And like Rahab, the evidence of our faith is found in our professions and in our actions. What do your actions reveal about what you really believe? What we do reveals what's true about what we believe in our hearts. Do your actions reveal that your hope is in Jesus? Or do they reveal that your hope is in yourself? And like Rahab, the results of true and saving faith are the same for us. We are justified, which means that we are declared righteous, which means we are declared to be right with God. That is the result saving faith. More than that, God doesn't just save Rahab. He invites her into his story of redemption, into the redeeming of, of innumerable amounts of people. And God is doing the same for us as he invites us, as he redeemed us into his redeeming work in the lives of others. I can guarantee you Rahab loved telling her story of transformation. I can guarantee you she loved telling that story. What an incredible story of God's grace. I just need you to hear me. You have the same story as her. Every one of us has the same story as her. Because we have all worshipped other gods and prostituted ourselves out to other gods. We have rejected God as our king, as the one true one. And all of us need his grace. And by grace and faith in him, we receive salvation. You have the exact same story as Rahab. That's the good news of the gospel. So who is God sending you to? How is he inviting you to proclaim his story of redemption in and through your life? Lastly, there are some of you here this morning that are like the Canaanites who have heard the stories of God's powerful work. You have heard about Jesus. You have heard me tell you about him over and over and over. It has been my joy and my pleasure to do it. I've often told you God's free offer of salvation, his his open offer of faith and hope to you. 
The famous 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon, he puts it this way. Jesus can save you, but he must be appropriated or he will be no savior to you. Remember that God, though he is the author of faith, cannot believe for you. You must believe for yourself. If we do not offer ourselves and repent and believe, Christ is not ours and we are not his, neither shall we obtain any benefit from his life or of his death. So tie the scarlet line in your window. For it will not be tied there for you. You have to do it with your own hand. my heart for you this morning. Tie up the scarlet cord of your faith. Put your hope in his promise to rescue and redeem. Ask him to do what he wants to enable the faith that he requires. He longs to do it. Ask him that he would. Rahab, a pagan prostitute, did. And God graciously saved her. Not because of who she was, but because of who he is. Trust him. Hope in him. Rely on him. In a few moments, we're going to take communion. Communion is a picture for us. It's a reminder about the gospel that we have believed. And the bread reminds us of Jesus' body that was broken for us as he lived the life we could not live. And the drink reminds us of Jesus' blood, which was shed for us. And as he did, he died the death that we should have died in our place. And communion does not make you right with God. It does not save you. 1 Corinthians 11 makes that clear. Rahab didn't take communion, and she was still right with God. Communion is not the thing that makes you right with God. Instead, for those of us who have put our faith and our trust in Jesus' body, in his blood, given for us to make us right with God. It is a remembering. And more than that, it is a celebration of all that God has done when we by faith put our hope in him. Every church uh, does communion a little bit differently. We have communion that's in the back. Here at River City, you just take the bread and you dip it in the juice and um, and, you, and you just take communion that way. And it's between you and God. There's nobody serving you. You just do it as, as the time would see fit. And as we sing and as we worship and remember the gospel together in song, if you've put your hope and your trust in Jesus as Rahab did, as her only hope to save her, then whenever you are ready, go back and take communion and celebrate and remember all that God has done for you. But if you've not yet put your trust in Jesus as your only hope for salvation, spend this time praying, asking God, talking with him. Ask him that he would enable you to put your faith and your hope and your trust in him. God wants to do it. Ask him that he would. Let's pray. God, we're so grateful that this morning we get to come and to celebrate uh, you. God, we're so thankful for the story of Rahab, which for us is just like this incredible, incredible picture of your grace. And we're thankful for her faith, God, that her faith is the thing that saved her, that you were the object of her faith, that you were the source of it, you were the basis of it. God, we're so grateful for her story. God, and my hope is that we would see ourselves in her story, that we would see ourselves as ones who desperately 
need your grace. God, and that we'd run to you to claim it. That as we take communion, we would remember that it's by grace through faith that we have a right relationship with you. God, would that spring forth in us just like unyielding worship and lives given back to you, God. God, we don't deserve saving, but you did it. Not because of us, in spite of us. God, fill us with worship for you because of that. Because of your great mercy shown in grace that comes by faith.